Hi, I'm Raylene Taskowski, and I've talked to over 10,000 women about sex over the past decade. Welcome to the Stand Up Comedy Sex Ed podcast. Welcome to Stand Up Comedy Sex Ed. It's where you can get questions answered like... How long does it take the average man to orgasm? And... How long does it take the average woman to orgasm? And also... Why is it so hot in here? Audiences agree. It's brilliantly funny. Raylene makes sex ed fun. This show is entertaining, factual, and relatable. There's nothing worse than being halfway done with sex and feeling your vagina shut down on you. (laughs) You've got to see stand-up comedy sex ed. I am ready to go do that comedy show. (laughs) Welcome to the Stand-Up Comedy Sex Ed Podcast, hosted by Raylene Taskowski and some other guests. And today's guest is my friend Sarah, who was raised in the purity culture. And as I've said frequently before on this podcast, the two things that have damaged sex the most is church and porn. So we're going to have a discussion about the church. Welcome, Sarah. Well, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. We've had so many conversations about sex over the last two, three years that I've known you. And so it's about time I got you on the podcast. There's something about sex that um, makes you really good friends right off the bat. When that's your first intro is learning all about someone's sex life. I mean, it's just hard to go back to acquaintances from that. Exactly. But you have brilliant insights to so many things that I just love the way you you phrase things. And I know there's a lot of women out there who were raised um, just believing that sex is wrong unless you were married. Sex is bad unless you were married. Sex is and, and they gave this, you know all of these rules about sex until you're married, but then that whole feeling of being dirty and being naughty and not doing what God wants or whatever doesn't go away the day you get married. Yeah. Or God forbid you have sex before you get married. I think that was the, the worst part of it was the shame that people carry. And definitely, um, you know, that's kind of, that was kind of the joke that God can forgive you for killing someone, but not for sleeping with someone And it was just growing up in um, what I would refer to as purity culture. It, that was one thing that was just drilled into my head from my parents. Like don't have sex. Sex is bad. If you have sex, you're going to get a disease and get pregnant and die. Um, But it was so much more than just don't have sex until your wedding night. It was also this pressure of don't even think about it. Don't watch dirty movies. Don't listen to sexual lyrics. Um, there was a lot of pressure as a woman. It was sort of this, this expectation that, well, men can't help themselves. They'll always think about sex. So it's your job as a woman to make their life easier by dressing really modestly. And so that was extra pressure of, okay, well, I can't be attractive because then I'll make my brothers stumble. Um, and it creates kind of a complex, but then there's also, it's it's almost like the church is obsessed with sex. Um, and I went to a very Christian university and there was kind of a, a running joke that it was a requirement to be a speaker at that university that you had to say, don't have sex somewhere in your talk. Uh, because no matter what people were talking about, even if it was completely unrelated, it somehow came back to that, but paralleled with married couples really emphasizing how great their sex was because they were married. And it sort of created this idea that, okay, if I am a good girl and I play by the rules and I do things the right way, once I get married, it's just going to be fireworks. It's going to be amazing. And, you know, all the couples that had sex outside of marriage, well, boo for them because their sex life is going to suck, but mine is going to rock. Um, and uh, not to disparage my ex-partner, um, but I did not do anything until my wedding night. And it was terrible and never really got any better. Yeah, that's... That's the worst. If you get a bad partner and you're stuck with them forever. Mm. And I feel like I meet those women at party because they're like, I could just not have sex. It would be fine. And I was like, you've got the wrong partner. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was interesting because I I did wait. um, And by wait, I mean, literally, I had not seen male anatomy. I had not touched myself, like nothing until my wedding night. 
and all of a sudden you're with this person and I'm only 80% sure we consummated the marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Neither of us really knew what we were doing. Um, And then it became a really damaging aspect to the relationship because I learned about myself that I am a very sexual person and I wanted, you know, I was married. I had a green light. So I wanted to be with him all the time. And I think he was more damaged by purity culture than I was at the time. And he just never wanted to touch me. And when you come from this understanding that men will do anything for sex, and now all of a sudden as the woman where you've been told like, oh, well, you're pretty much just going to oblige your husband when you can because that's his need. It was very damaging to feel like, okay, I'm begging this person to be with me and they would rather play video games. Like I must be just so repugnant and undesirable. Um, and I knew, I knew when I was married that it was unhealthy. I knew that that wasn't great. And we really had to work through that. Um, and then about four years into my marriage, um, some other things came up and eventually the, the marriage dissolved for a number of reasons. And, coming out of marriage and trying to date was very interesting because now I, I was in this place of, okay, I still believe that sex is supposed to be in the context of a marriage. I believe that that is, you know, it's wrong to do anything outside of that, but I am not going through what I went through again. There's no way that I am marrying someone not knowing that it's going to be good. Um, because I think sex is a very important part of a relationship and I just, I can't, I can't wrap my head around going into another relationship with someone who doesn't ever want to touch me. And so it was this drastic culture shock of going from, you don't even think about it to online dating where you're literally swiping on your dates, like ordering up a pizza. And (laughs) now all of a sudden, you know, people, it's not weird for people to have full on intercourse the first time they're meeting. Um, And it was just, I felt really lost being in this, this world of, okay, I don't want to hold on to purity culture. I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that it led to, a healthy sexual life. I think it was really damaging for myself and my self-esteem, but I also think that it's really damaging to allow that kind of physical intimacy with someone who you don't have emotional intimacy and safety with. Right. And so I sort of, as I was figuring that out, um, I, I sort of got my heart hurt on the other side And I was so hungry for someone to tell me that I was beautiful, that I was desired, that I was an okay person, that I definitely gave myself and my time to people who did not deserve it. Um, And it sort of left me in this place of despair of, okay, there's just no good way to have sex. Like it, it sucks to wait. It sucks to do it. It just, I, you know, I, I want to be with someone, but I just don't think that there's any way around it. Um, And so it really challenged me to think about my views and to think about, you know, what, what did my sexuality mean in my life? Um, Was I a bad person for wanting to have intimacy with someone? What were the boundaries and trying to find the middle between purity culture and hookup culture was definitely an interesting adventure yeah yeah and you got dropped into it so how old were you when you got married I was 24 all right so that's not too bad I've I've met a lot of people in the purity culture who get married like at 18 because they're like Mm -hmm. all right I'm ready to have sex and so I'm just gonna marry this person so I can have sex and then a year later they're divorced and they're doing yeah. Um, they're flipping. They're going from purity culture to hookup culture because now that the demon has been released. Yep. I don't want to say demon because it's it. The angel has been released. The pleasure has been released, or the thought is. And so now you're just like, okay, well that didn't work. And so there's um, there's just like a a flip. 
Yeah. There's half truths on both sides. And I think that's what makes it really difficult to discern was that there's absolutely some truth in purity culture. I do believe that sex is much better when you are connected with someone, when you have an emotional relationship. I believe that it's very intimate. There is a lot of um, not just religious roots, but biologically, your body gives off chemicals when you're with someone where you are quite literally becoming one with that person and it does form an attachment. And so to that end, there is some truth that the more attachments you're forming with different people, it's going to sort of change your ability to have a really deep fulfilled attachment with one person. And so I understand that aspect. um, And I think that there was a lot of merit and there are pieces that I miss about dating in the church where you actually got to know someone and there wasn't pressure. And I think where sex was not on the table Right. At that it moment. Even, wasn't even a, a possibility. Right. Like you're not gonna see this body until you put a ring on it. Like right. so there's like no- there was there was a dating expectation versus now there's a hookup expectation. Right. And when you're hooking up with someone or when you're with someone physically, it accelerates that intimacy. And I think sometimes um what happens is that you end up sort of playing house. Yeah. And you feel like you're in a really intimate relationship. You feel like everything is good and you're getting along. And then several months in, well, now you've been together six months, a year, however long. And now you're starting to think, okay, maybe we should think about being serious. And you realize you've never had conversations that you probably should have had before you fell in love with that person. You really should have talked about whether both of you want kids or, you know, how you're going to raise them or what your beliefs are or what your communication habits are. And so I think that there's, that's the aspect of waiting that I think is good. I think on the other side of things, um, I don't think that it's healthy to have an imbalance of physical and emotional intimacy. I think that largely, um, you know, there's always exceptions, but generally speaking, men connect through physicality and women connect emotionally. And I think that it creates an imbalance when on purity culture side, you're completely emotionally invested, but you've never been physically connected. And I think that makes it very difficult for men to, to truly be connected to their wives or their partner. And on the flip side, if you're giving yourself completely to someone physically and they're not willing to give themselves to you emotionally, that's an imbalance as well. And I think that part of a successful relationship is keeping both of those in tandem and you're investing in someone emotionally at the same rate that you're investing in them physically. Yeah. One of my kids just went through that second half mm-hmm. where they had the, the physicality, but not the, connection and quite frankly he was upfront from the beginning that he didn't want that and of course she started to catch feelings and then you know when it was pretty obvious that that wasn't gonna happen it you know broke her heart and that broke my heart because I was just like how many times do I have to tell you toys not boys (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. toys will never break your heart And then just because I am who I am, I'm like, well, did you at least get an orgasm out of him? And she said, no. And I'm like, wasn't even worth it. (laughs) Get a toy, damn it. (laughs) It's so hard. And I think especially like for me, it's not as much about the orgasm as it is about connection. And so I, toys just aren't the same. And I think that's what that was a lot of the struggle was that I was looking for that connection. And sometimes when you're with the wrong person and they can only connect through physicality, you sort of trick yourself into thinking that it's a connection. And I think the other thing that is a really difficult lesson to learn is that there's multiple aspects to look for when we're going to be in a relationship with someone. There's the aspect of, I really like this person who they are, their personality, they bring out the best in me, there's good sexual chemistry, there's that aspect of actually loving the person, but then there's the other aspect of the choices that that person makes, and are they healthy for a relationship? And I think that 
oftentimes in purity culture, it's a little too much focused on the decisions and not the person. And you're looking for someone who is making the decisions of being a, a good husband and a good leader and a good partner, but you're not really encouraged to look for personality. Um, and I know in my instance, looking back, um, my ex-husband and I were not, we should never have been together. Um, and when I addressed concerns about that early on when I was dating, we were told several times by different leaders in the church that, you know, that's what friends are for. You know, I was told as a woman, like, well, you need your girlfriends. That's where you go find conversation. That's where you have your fun. As long as you and your husband both love Jesus, your marriage is going to be great because that's the only thing that matters. <laughs> and that is um, easily top five worst advice I've ever received. There is so much more than having a shared <laughs> affinity for a religious deity. Um, and that just doesn't that doesn't work. You have to pay attention to your personality and your wiring and your chemistry and all of that. On the flip side, when you're falling in love with someone and you're paying all your attention to this is an amazing person, this is everything that I want, but you're ignoring their choices and you're being intimate with them and you're having a fun time, but you're not really paying attention to the fact that maybe they, they aren't really emotionally available. Maybe it is a little one-sided. Maybe it's you know, they're not really responsible enough for marriage and family and to handle stress and crisis and the very real difficult things that happen in life. I think there's heartbreak on that side too. And so it's, it's a very difficult thing to sort of realize that you have to find someone who is a little bit of everything. Um, and especially if you're in the world of online dating, that feels a little bit like a mission impossible. I would imagine. It's like you should put right in your profile, does not have sex till the fifth date. <laughs> right. And, and that's just a guideline. That doesn't mean day date five, we have sex. That means I have four chances to even decide if I want to move to the next level. Like it's off the table. So I watch um, Married at First Sight. Do you watch that? Yes. I love that show. And in the last episode, um, Karen and Miles are having the problem because Miles obviously wants to move forward and Karen is still nervous. And the doctor said, um, this, the sexologist, she said, well, what if you just take um, intercourse off the table so that you can build intimacy? Because I think Karen was just afraid that if she made one step, it would be all the steps at once. Right. And Miles was like, yeah, that's fine. It's just like, I would like to have some affection, just, you know, touch me, say hi, give me a kiss, give me a snuff, something, some physical affection. But, you know, to know, to make her more comfortable that sex is off the table. And I feel like people, you know, I've told you, my, my book is going to be called The Lost Art of the Dry Hump. Like, we really need to get to the point where we get to know somebody before we become fluid bonded or straight up go right in for intercourse. And I'm not claiming any innocence. I've had plenty of had had plenty of one night stands when I was, you know, prior to meeting my husband, uh, you know, but one of the last one night stands I had resulted in the birth of a child. So, yeah. you know, I got a little, a little pickier after that. Uh, yeah. It, it is a, an interesting, that was one thing that I think I really grieved. Um, and I know that sounds weird to say that I grieved the loss of purity culture, but I really grieved the middle that was a really frustrating thing for me of trying to date. And I really wanted to be passionate and connect with someone, but I didn't want to go all the way. And it was so frustrating to me that I felt like I had to be zero or 60. Right. There was no in the middle. There was, you know, the person who respected my values and said, okay, I'm just not going to touch you until you're ready. And then there was the person who was like, okay, we're ready. And I think that that is something that we really need to work on is being more comfortable with the buildup and being more comfortable with those middle steps. And like I said, growing that physical intimacy with emotional intimacy, there are a lot of ways to really enjoy someone without having full on sex. Right. And, you know, I think one thing that definitely stays with me with having sex with someone is there are consequences 
you want to make sure that you know them. You want to make sure that they are clean. You want to make sure that you trust them. And you want to make sure that if an accident happens, you are okay being possibly permanently connected to that person. Right. Um, and these are things that I think are really important to think about. And so to be able to, to grow together in physical and emotional intimacy, I think is really important. And it's a, it's frustrating sometimes the emphasis, it's almost like sex hijacks the relationship on either side. And growing up in the church, you're sort of told that, you know, you're supposed to wait and take it off the table because then you know that the person really wants to be with you. They're not just dating you for sex. Like they really want to be with you. And, um, you know, once you have sex with someone, you know that they're going to stay with you forever because you're married. The flaws with that thinking are firstly, I went to a Christian college and I watched a lot of horny boys date a lot of girls where they literally would just ask out every girl in the hall, one after another, after another, after another, until one said yes, because they just wanted to get a wife to have some good Christian sex. Right. A lot of couples, like that was why they got married right out of college. It wasn't because they were financially ready. It wasn't because they were emotionally ready. They were just horny. And, you know, as long as you've gotten along for a year's worth of time, like, it's all good. Let's do it. Um, it's funny other- because we both know people who have done that. We both yeah. know people. Like, I can, I can count, like, four or five people that I know. And I'm not even in a church where yeah. I see, you know, it's, like, people that I worked with or a couple of relatives, you know, um, some friends that my daughters had, and you know, I'm like, why are you getting married at 18? And then was, I look and I say, oh, how many times does that girl ask my daughter to go to church with her? She's getting yeah. married so she can have sex. Yeah. All right. And that's not supposed to be the point of getting married. Yeah. And it's, you know, I can't really be mad at it because physiologically we're wired with physical needs. I think it's not healthy to suppress that part of us. Our our sexuality is just as important as any other piece of us. And I think it's very unhealthy to suppress that. Um, But the other flaw with the thinking is that marrying someone does not guarantee that they won't leave you. It doesn't guarantee that they won't break your heart. And I know a lot of people who are married and miserable um, being married does not necessarily mean that you will be happy. It does not mean that your partner will love you. It does not mean that they are committed to you. Even if they remain committed to the piece of paper, there is always potential for heartbreak. There's always potential for someone to walk away, whether or not a ring and a certificate are involved. And so I think that having sex is the emphasis on that end is definitely an issue. Um, and I don't necessarily think that, that waiting makes that a sure thing. And I think that there is something about connecting with someone physically that tells you a lot about who they are. And I think that that is an important aspect. Once you get to the place where you decide, okay, I really like this person. We have enough in common that I feel like we could build a relationship off of. I think that it is important to introduce that physicality and to grow that with all the other pieces of the relationship. I know that um, during this COVID time, I have a friend and she had started to date someone right before COVID hit. And then, you know, they lived in New York City, so they were very serious about not coming in contact with each other, but they would talk on the phone every night for hours and they would FaceTime for hours. And so now coming out of COVID, they've uh, started hanging out more. And I, I'm not sure whether or not they had a physical relationship before. Um, but even if they had, COVID gave them a chance to really get to know each other without the physicality coming in. So they would talk for hours. And, um, I, and I think coming out of just watching those two together, they're probably, if they do decide to get married, and they probably will because they're at that age, um, it'll probably be a better relationship than most people have because they did take that time to get to know each other, even though it was a forced period of time to get to know each other. Absolutely. Honestly, even if it's just a month, like having conversation where physicality is off the table and you're really connecting with someone, it does make it so much better. And I think the other thing that I found with 
coming out of a lot of pain and trauma and abuse and heartbreak and going into the dating culture is that sex is often used as a band-aid. It's, it's very much not really what anyone is looking for. And I found that I surprised myself even with when I was having conversations with people, I would freak out a little bit and feel like, oh, I actually care about this person. This person could hurt me. And that got in the way of being able to be physical with them because I thought, no, I need to protect myself. I need to make sure that this is an okay thing. And as opposed to, you know, if you are with someone who you've had one conversation with, there's something that feels safer because you don't really care if they hurt you because you don't know them. It doesn't right. matter. Well, it's, you don't, you don't think you can be hurt because you don't care enough about them. Right. You don't have enough of a connection. So, you know, if you are physical with this person and they never call you again, it's easy enough to say, well, yeah, I knew that they were an asshole anyway. Right. And I was it, just using them for sex. Right. And it's this, it's this protection and it's almost like a bandaid of, I just want to feel like I am desired, like I'm wanted. And it's almost like playing pretend for a night and right. you're kind of mentally blocking everything out. And I think that, I think that what surprised me with my viewpoints was realizing the shame that had been put on that. You know, they talk about in the church of like, you know, there's a a Jesus shaped hole in your heart. And when you try to fill it with sex and drugs and money, like it just doesn't fit. And there's all kinds of um, cheesy analogies, but I do think that there is something that needs to be um, completed and we can use these things like sex as a band aid. but I feel like sometimes you need a band aid. Sometimes you're not not in a place. And when I look back, I basically dated for a year and figured out where I fell with everything. And when I look back, there's definitely a couple, I don't, I wouldn't even call them relationships, but there's a couple um, conversations that I would go back on. And now that I have come back to terms with my self-worth, I realize that, you know, they weren't worth my time, but I don't really feel regret and shame because I don't think that I was at a place in my life where it would have been healthy for me to be in another relationship. I don't think it would have been healthy for me to fully invest myself in someone. I think that I really needed that time to get to know different people, to let different people get to know me. I think I really needed to come to terms with who I was and what makes me me. Um, And there's something about dating physically as well. And I'm not suggesting that you should just go sleep with hundreds of different people and figure out what you like. That's not what I'm saying. But (laughs) to go on different- That would be one hell of a 180 right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's not the solution. Um, But to go on different dates with different people and to be with different people in physical capacities I do think is important. I think that's a big piece of figuring out who you are. And for me, it was very healing in figuring out who I was, what I liked, what I didn't like, what I was worthy of, what I was not willing to settle for. Um, It really helped me come to terms with self-worth. And I think the other thing that came out of that was I think that largely a lot of times we sort of get sucked into physicality because we think that that's what we're supposed to do. And if we really look at it objectively at the end, a lot of times it's not even really that great, particularly for women. Um, So it's much easier to just do it ourselves. Yeah. Honestly, (laughs) if you're with someone and it's not that great, it is not worth the risk. And that was something that I had to come to terms with too, where I was like, you know what? I really want to be with someone. I'm, you know, I'm in my thirties. I'm horny as hell. Like I want to connect with someone, but it's not worth it if I'm not actually getting off and enjoying it. Right. Well, and that's what I tried telling my daughter. (laughs) Yeah, it's not worth it. And you can generally tell when there, it's like a shift and you can tell the moment that it is no longer about you. It's no longer about connection. It's just about the guy or just about whatever. And I think that that is a really important thing to be able to discern is when, when is sex just selfish? And if you're just using someone to get off, like use a toy, it's way better. 
if you are genuinely connecting with someone, I think that that's a whole different situation. Right. And if you're genuinely, genuinely connecting with someone and the sex isn't good the first time, then you go back and you make it better. Yeah. Right. Whereas if you don't have a genuine connection and the sex is bad, you're like, that was a waste of time. Yeah. Right. If- there's no, there's no real rules. I don't know that I can say that there's a, Oh, well, if you wait six months, it'll be okay. Or if you wait six right. weeks, it'll be okay. And you know, there's people who I waited, um, you know, a good couple months and it, wasn't great because they weren't great. Um, and the relationship that really, I think did the most healing and redeeming, um, I invited him over on the second date. It was very out of character of me. Um, but it was someone who I genuinely connected with and it didn't feel dirty. It didn't feel like a hookup. It felt like I just met my best friend and I'm really excited to spend more time with them. And there was no pressure to rush into everything. Um, We definitely enjoyed the space between zero and 60 and building that intimacy together until we got to that point. It really showed me how sex could be and how it's supposed to be when you are connecting and you're, you're growing at a, a pace that works for both of you. And it's not this, it's not this pressure to jump into something and then worry like, Oh, I just gave all myself to someone and I don't know if they're going to ditch me in the morning, but it's, it's just this really sweet space of becoming best friends with someone in every capacity. And I think Mm -hmm. that that can happen very quickly. I think that that can happen very slowly. I think that as a society, we really need to stop slut shaming and we need to stop prude shaming. And you know what? Like, Stop shaming. Is yours. Yeah. And it is different with every person. And there's no hard and fast rule about it that works for every human on the planet. I think that we have a responsibility to know ourselves and our own body and to know what works for us. And that might be different with whatever partner we're with. But I think that the more that we can make it individual to who we are, more intimate to who we are the better it's going to be for everybody involved. Right. So I was just thinking, I wrote this down while you were talking, is that sex is self-care. Right. So sometimes, like you said, you need a Band-Aid, you know, um, not going into slut shaming, but sometimes if you're out and your mood is up and you find somebody who makes you feel attractive and they make you feel hot and they make you feel wanted and needed at that moment, then you, then, and, and it turns out good, then, you know, that was just self-care. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the best analogies, um, I was talking to a therapist and they were, I was talking about how it felt like being starving and the only thing around was Taco Bell. And you're like, well, this is gross, <laughs> but I'm really hungry. It's the only thing here. And it was just, that's how I pictured sex and dating. And I still kind of think about it and laugh every time I drive by a Taco Bell. Um, but she was saying, like, you know, with the whole being a Band-Aid, like, it's just like junk food. You can decide, okay, I know that this, you know, double-decker taco or Crunchwrap Supreme, whatever, I know that it's not super healthy for me, but I'm hungry and it's, it's here, fuel, and I'm willing to deal with the consequences tomorrow. Right. <laughs> now, if you are eating Taco Bell every single day and you're not satisfied with it and the consequences outweigh the benefits, that's when it becomes unhealthy. And I think that that was something that I definitely carried into relationships of, you know what, sometimes it's okay to have a little bit of junk food. Like, you know, it's okay that to wake up the is morning and be super like, super good analogy, you know, like, Oh, all right. I regret that. I regret right. that crunch wrap a little bit, but you know what? It was good in the moment and tomorrow. Right. I'll have salad. Um, but, Today I'll have the shits, but tomorrow I'll have a salad. <laughs> yeah. So I think being aware of like, when is it healing and when is it hurting? And I think that that's the most important aspect of the self-care and self-love is knowing yourself well enough to know 
that it's not necessarily a hard and fast, okay, it's best for me to wait X amount of time, or it's best for me to hook up, or it's best for me to do whatever, but to really know in the moment, okay, what are the dynamics of this relationship? What am I feeling? What am I needing? What is going to ultimately make me my best self? What is ultimately going to make me the healthiest version of me? And I think everybody has a healthy dose of trauma in our lives and that gets compounded in sexual relationships. And so if I could tell myself or anyone one piece of advice, it would be to address that trauma before you go out and invite other people in. And I think that, you know, we'll always have some aspect of it, but I think that it, it was really important for me to work through some of my hurt and healing and to really think about what I really needed and what I really wanted. Because a lot of where I got hurt was my heart and my head arguing with each other. And I was in these relationships where I wasn't ready to be physical. I wasn't ready um, to have any kind of that relationship. I wasn't prepared for it, but I also was super needy and wanted affection. And it was just my head and heart constantly at odds with each other. And so, you know, you're in the moment, hormones usually win. And then it's that moment after feeling that intense regret and shame. And I think that that was really unhealthy and it doesn't just ruin things for me, but for whoever I'm with, it ruins things for the partner. It ruins the whole dynamic because now you just took something that's supposed to be fun and beautiful and you made it another piece of trauma and I don't think that very many people out there want to intentionally add to someone's trauma or pain so I think that that is really important to recognize why you're doing something and what your motivation is and to be very aware of when it crosses into a place of being very unhealthy so do you think that the purity culture is a, let's talk about the difference between church and like the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, is there a lot in the, in the, like I'm thinking 10 commandments, it says something about marriage, but I don't remember it ever saying you're going to hell if you have sex. It's an interesting discussion because it really, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to. That's true. You can run it through any filter and growing up in the evangelical faith the way that I did, um, the Bible was very much black and white. Don't have sex. Don't even think about it. It's an evil thing. Um, and so there are a lot of passages and verses that talk about this idea of lust, the idea of honoring your body. Um, but I also think that you can read it through a completely different lens um, and in the 10 commandments, particularly that's talking about adultery. Right. And in most contexts, when sex is brought up in the Bible, it's not so much about just not having sex as it is. Don't take what's not yours. Right. That okay. And so it is interesting reading through and even, um, just reading things in different contexts and looking at, okay, David was a man after God's own heart. The only sex he ever got in trouble for was Bathsheba, who was a married woman who he summoned to have sex with him, got her pregnant and then murdered her husband so that he wouldn't be found out. Oh, I don't think it was the sex that was the issue. I think right. it was the <laughs> feeling and the murder. Um, and it's weird because I don't remember that story about David. I only just remember him and Goliath. So, <laughs> oh, no, that was when he was a kid. When he was a grown up, uh, Bathsheba was bathing on the roof, um, which sounds really provocative until you realize that culturally women had to bathe on the roof when they were menstruating. Uh, and so basically, she was trying to take care of herself, and he saw her and was like, Ooh, I know that I have a million billion wives and girlfriends, but I want her. So he summoned her and when um, she got pregnant, he panicked and he sent her husband to the front lines of the army, knowing that he was going to be killed. Mm. And that was why that was an issue. And it, it is very interesting reading through the Bible from a open mind of sex positivity, that sex is okay. Um, and let me tell you how difficult that is to do after 30 years of reading it as black and white, like, 
don't even think about it. Um, but I, I don't think that the Bible is black and white. I think that I think there's a lot of gray areas. I think that there are a lot of people who are having a lot of intimacy and God doesn't really say anything about it. Um, but isn't the whole Song of Sol Solomon all sex? Yes, and they are not married. Let me tell you. Uh, okay, so it's church that damaged us, not God, not the Bible. Absolutely. And there's a lot of, um, I don't want to call it conspiracy theory, speculation maybe, um, that a lot of a lot of where we got the Bible that we have came from the canonization of the Bible, um, which was basically a bunch of white men in a room, right? Mm. Who kind of framed what books were going to be no in. No one else was in the room when it happened. <laughs> um, King James literally rewrote the Bible and right. took out the pieces he didn't like. Um, the Bible has been translated and passed through so many times. It's a beautiful book. It is but it has been translated so many times. I think that it's very reckless and irresponsible to take it as this infallible right. thing. And no matter who you talk to, there's always these kind of picking and choosing of, well, this was cultural, so it no longer applies. Oh, but this one we're going to decide is black and white. And right. I think from my perspective, love God, love yourself, love others. That's if I'm, living in love. I feel like I'm good. Um, but there's, it is, there's only one Bible verse that I have memorized and it's, uh, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God for God is love. Um, hold on. I know that I know the verse too. Uh, first John four, seven and eight. And the only reason I know it is because it was a song and I used to sing it and I just loved the song. And yeah. so that's for me when I see all these people doing things hatefully in God's name. And I'm like, did you miss first John four, seven and eight? Cause there's a cute song. You could learn it. Yeah. <laughs> there's definitely a lot of missing the point. Um, right. And it, it is what's interesting to me is even if you come from a perspective of the Bible is literal, it's the infallible word of God. If you believe that the Bible is the infallible word of God and that is what makes your salvation and saves you, wouldn't you want to be for damn sure that you're right about right. it? And so if now that we have Google and insight and education and all these resources we never had before, if there's a possibility that, oh, hey, maybe we got it wrong and we're not supposed to be against gay people or we're not supposed to be against sex, like maybe we are supposed to be loving people physically, I would want to know that. And that was something that I think really pushed me to walk away from that world was the avoidance of questions. Right. I, I want to know if there's a God who is all powerful and controls my destiny, I want to make sure I have it right. I want to understand what's really happening. And even just asking um, or having conversations about things when you're you're pushing back of, okay, this is culturally what I think is happening. This is the context of what's happening. When it doesn't fit the framework of what has been promoted through the church, there's a lot of resistance. Um, one of the funniest ones was actually, it's a story of this girl named Ruth and her husband passed as well as her father-in-law. Um, and she decides to stay with the mother-in-law. And, and this time, you know, if your husband dies, you're pretty much out of luck. Like you can't get remarried because you're not a virgin. You can't work. Like it's pretty much a death sentence. So she decides to stay with the mother-in-law. They're going to be in it together. Um, she goes to this giant wheat field to try to find some food and glean the scraps. And the guy who owns the wheat field looks at her and takes favor on her and gives her all the good scraps. And she comes home and her mother-in-law is like, oh my gosh, like, how did you get all these good scraps? And she says, oh, well, this dude Boaz gave me all the good food and was looking out for me. And the mother-in-law says, oh my goodness, Boaz is your, I think, you know, cousin or some kind of family member where it would have been okay for him to marry her. He could have been the kinsman redeemer. Right. And so she hatches this plan and tells her, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to put on your best lipstick, your best perfume, your best dress, you're going to sneak out to the wheat field in the middle of the night and you're going to lay at his feet. 
And Ruth kind of pushes back and says, basically, well, isn't he going to think I'm a whore? (laughs) And she says, no, no, like, don't worry about it. Like, just listen to me. Just trust me. So in the church version of the story, she goes in the middle of the night, she lays down at his feet and kind of pulls his robe a little bit over his ankle, which was scandalous at the time. And he wakes up and says, what are you doing? And she says, why don't you pull that robe over me? which is supposed to be, you know, hey, why don't you protect me? Why don't you marry me? And then he agrees to marry her and he's supposed to be symbolic of the Christ to come and, oh, this kinsman redeemer, he loves her so well. What a beautiful, innocent story. So if you look up the context of what the word feet means, um, the word feet means penis. So she was definitely waking him up with a blowjob. And I got to say, that's probably a pretty successful way to get a man. I think I could get a man doing that too. Um, It changes the whole context of, you know, okay, she's putting on lipstick. She's wearing perfume. She's seducing him. Right. And, you know, now that she has gone down on him, he's like, yeah, all right, I'll protect you. I'll keep you around. Like we can do this. Right. I mean, if I can wake up to a blowjob in the middle of the night, why not? Right. So I just, I thought that that was just the craziest thing um, of, oh my gosh, like, why has this never been taught? That seems like a big difference laying at someone's feet and laying at someone's penis. And there was so much pushback of like, well, that's just not possible because God doesn't promote sex. I'm like, okay, but this is literally like, I'm looking up the word of what it means. Can you not even acknowledge that there's a possibility that this is what was going on. Yeah, because down. otherwise, why would Ruth have thought that he was going to think she was a whore? Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Like, just mother-in-law says, go wake him up with a blowjob. He's going to think I'm a whore. No, it's fine. He's going to love it. Like, that's yeah. different than, you know, let me be down here brushing your ankle. And he'd be like, whore? Like, that doesn't even make sense. Yeah, it changes the whole way that you look at things. And I think that um, there's a lot of speculation going back to how people set up the canon, that it was set up with an agenda, that people were, you know, changing it to make it fit a certain viewpoint. There's a lot of power in the family structure. So if you're a church and you're looking to get money and you're looking to sustain yourself, the best way to grow that agenda is through the family unit. If you are preventing people from having sex and having families outside the church and you're preserving this patriarchal setup, you've kind of infiltrated an entire system. And what's really interesting is if you look at the systems of white supremacy, of patriarchy, of all these different things, whether or not you ever grew up in a church or with Christian belief, they are very deeply connected the structure, the power structure are deeply rooted in this country. There are deeply embedded religious roots in this nation. And I think that that is a lot to do with sex is that there's, there's control in that. There's agenda with that. And I think that, you know, I'm not trying to, to bash religion. I am sure that there are healthy churches out there. Oh, I am. I bash the fuck out of religion. I don't bash the Bible and I don't bash Jesus, but I, I will bash the shit out of religion in church. Cause I don't, I think they're all just little weird cluster. I think they're all little tiny weird cults. I think when people get involved, they become that. I think that there can be something really beautiful about, um, coming together and just worshiping or basically just, you know, acknowledging, wow, I'm lucky to be alive. Look at this beautiful creation. I think that's beautiful. I think that in most organized religion, and especially looking at, you know, the one that I can really speak to is the evangelical faith, because I grew up in all kinds of denominations within that. Um, The amount of times that there would be church splits or people who would felt called to open up another church. And it's like, Okay, you feel called to open up another church down the street. Why not come together? And it's largely because people want to be able to do things their way. They have a slight difference of opinion. Yep. And when you put God in the mix, 
it becomes a lot more loaded because it's not just, oh, I view it this way, I view it this way. It's I view it this way and you're going to hell if you don't because this is how God intended it. And so there's all this mix up of, I think, concern. Um, It comes out in very unhealthy ways. I think it comes out in control and abuse and toxicity. But I think for a lot of Christians who are a little bit overbearing with their evangelicalism, um, you know, I can think about even myself. I was never one who shoved things down people's throats. But I definitely got uncomfortable when people lived in a way um, that was, you know, quote, sinful. And I have a very different understanding of sin at this point in life. But it wasn't that I was judging them or that I hated them or anything like that. It was I was coming from a belief of how you're living is not how God created you to live. And so it's going to cause you misery and pain and potentially eternal damnation. So that compels me, you know, if I am trying to be a loving person and I know that you're about to walk into a sinkhole, I'm going to feel like I need to do whatever I can to help you not step into that sinkhole. And so that's the perspective that I think a lot of people are coming from. Um, but it, it does manifest in control. And ultimately, you have to let people walk where they want to walk. You have to let people do what they want to do. And I think that it's very healthy to have open discussions. But ultimately, I think that every person really needs to figure out who they are what is your core identity? What is healthy for you? What is the best life for you? And I think it's really important that we be open-minded in understanding that we don't know everything about what someone else has been through and what is healthy for them may be polar opposite from what we would experience. Right. I used to tell my girls, um, if you walk around telling everybody that they're doing things wrong, nobody is going to like you. Uh, but if you set a good example, and for instance, um, and you would say, um, I would love to hang out with you and play with you, but not when you're doing that thing, then you had the power and the control. And if you were living, you know, your good life and you made your life seem pretty good by itself, people would stop doing the things that you didn't want them to do. And they would start to, you know, follow you. And I said, so you never have to follow somebody else into their negative hole, but you can set an example and, and lead them to yours without being pushy. Right. Well, and I think it's really important to listen to other people's experiences because I, I totally believe in sharing wisdom and advice. If there is someone is living in a really damaging way and I've lived in that damaging way and I see that damage happen, I think it's okay to say, Hey, tell me about this thing that you're going through. This is what it was like for me. What is it like for you? But you can't hold to a black and white. I think you have to look at personal experience and that sexually for me, I realized that when people were telling me that the reason I needed to wait until marriage was because that's what God intended for sex. And that's what was best. That was not my experience. My experience was that waiting until we are married, it was incredibly harmful. It caused a lot of damage and hurt and pain that I am still processing and working through and having to heal from. And on the same side, like, yes, there were aspects of that were true. There is damage of constantly using sex like a Band-Aid. There's damage of hooking up with different people and having it not mean anything for sure. But I also found a lot of healing, like I said, in that particular relationship that it was a fairly short relationship um, because that person was in the military and got moved to the other side of the world um, sooner than either of us had hoped for. But my personal experience was that that was healthier, more enjoyable. It made me a healthier person. I was very unhealthy and very damaged in having sex within a marriage. And so when someone is trying to argue with me that that's the best way to do it because that's the healthiest way. And I'm telling them, no, I tried that and it did not work. 
it doesn't feel like someone is trying to love me and help me live my best life. It feels like someone is disregarding my experience and frankly being really disrespectful and hurtful and trying to push themselves onto me. And the other piece of that is that often a lot of the people who are telling me that, not that I go around asking everyone about their sex lives, um, but they're not all that happy with life. Right. I think that a lot of times in Christianity, it's like we're trying to sell something that we want, but we haven't actually experienced. And when I went through my divorce, that was something that I realized because I, I was in a situation where um, we were in the process of an adoption. We were in the final phase and my husband just very abruptly canceled the adoption, stopped talking to me. Um, realized he wasn't ready to be a father or husband. And it became a very emotionally, spiritually abusive situation. And for probably over two months, I was just living on my bathroom floor, crying and throwing up constantly. He wasn't talking to me. He was still in the house, but just ignoring my existence. And I called people in the church after a couple months because I just couldn't handle it anymore. And there were people who I called them and they said, well, is he cheating on you? Because if he's not cheating on you, you don't have a right to get divorced. So maybe you should just cook his favorite dinner and put on some lingerie and, you know, try harder to love him. Um, also in the top five worst advice. Uh, and it just, it was very, very damaging. And, um, I just completely lost track of where I was at, but I think that it's easy to get hung up on what we think is right. And what I realized is that there, there's a passage in the Bible that talks about spiritual fruit and it talks about when we're rooted in God's love, we produce fruit of peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control and joy. Understanding. And that's not one of them, but yeah, that probably comes from that too. Um, so it's this idea of when we have these healthy roots, we'll produce all these things and we don't have to try, right? Like an apple tree doesn't like, oh, I really need to pop out an apple. Like it just pops out an apple because that's what it does. And when I was listening to different people telling me like, you need to stay, you need to go, you need to decide what's right for you. I started to really pay attention to how fruity they were. Uh, and what I realized was that most <laughs> of the people who were telling me, oh, you need to stay because biblically that's what you have to do. I was looking at their life and realizing, you know, this person doesn't really have any peace or joy or gentleness. Like these are not qualities that they like. They, they kind of live a very stressed life that I don't really want. And I definitely gave more credit to the advice that came from people who were living lives where they were content and they were happy and they were free. Um, and I think that a lot of times what compounds the spiritual abuse in the church is this idea that it's sinful to be happy. You know, the devil wants to trick you into sinning by making you think that you're happy when you're not. And I think that it can trap us in situations where we're like, okay, this really sucks right now. So God must be growing me. This is really hard right now. So I must be getting ready for a blessing. And I, I just can't get on board with a God who wants me to live an entire life of misery. And I right. don't think that that that's not in the Bible that I read. I read about God blessing people not just through trials. Like, yes, there are blessings that come through trials. We become wiser. We grow. There's all those things. But suffering for the sake of suffering doesn't really help anyone. And it just keeps people in abusive and controlling situations. And when you look at who God blessed throughout the Bible, a lot of them were not necessarily A-plus Christians. Um, and they were blessed with with multiple women. They were blessed with money. They were blessed with all these things that we've sort of villainized. And I think that if we truly believe that God is a good father, then we should live like 
kids who have a good dad and not like kids who are terrified of an abusive controlling father that is going to punish us if we don't read their mind correctly and follow all the rules. That's really very smart. I remember um, someone in my family accused me one time of being too worldly. Mm. And I was like, what does that even mean? I'm like, you have a house, I have a house. You have a car, I have a car. It's a slightly better car, but it's still just a car. You know, like, what, what is it that I'm so worldly about? Like, I live in the world that God created for me. Yeah. And I honestly feel sometimes I'm more in touch with God than the people who go to church because I don't have anybody interfering with my conversation. Yeah. Like, I've, you know, developed an instinct. I, I recognize, and people can call it whatever, I call it karma, I recognize karma Mm -hmm. and I'm like, Oh, okay. I earned that one. Sorry. You know, and that's just how it goes. And I am, I'm really glad that we have this conversation too. I love talking to you. I'm glad you live closer to me now because now we just hang out again. Absolutely. I could talk about this all day long. Yeah. And this, I think people can get something out of this and, uh, all right. So I'm going to ask you two nosy questions. Okay. One nosy, no, two nosy questions. One, how old were you when you had your first orgasm? Ooh. Um, I got to think about it. This is when I find out whether or not you masturbated before you get married. <laughs> I did not. It was definitely uh, in marriage. Didn't happen very often, but I will give him credit. It did happen at least once. I was probably 25. Okay. Wow. Wow. You got a lot to catch up on. <laughs> oh, I know. Don't I know it? And then do you have any funny sex stories? Ooh. It doesn't even have to be yours. It could just be something you heard one time. I'm sure I do. I should have. I wish I would have thought about this earlier. I could have. I'm going to start warning people that I'm probably going to ask that. So I think um, it's fun. It is a fun question. Um, I think... I, the one that comes to mind right now um, was when I was married and we thought it would be a good idea to try to make a baby. And it was very unromantic. <laughs> it was super awkward. We had read these different articles about the best ways to conceive and everything. And so we kind of did the deed and neither one of us were like super satisfied with it. Um, I'm pretty sure I asked like if he wanted chicken for dinner, like while <laughs> it was happening. And then I remember laying on the bed with my feet like propped up and my butt propped up, trying to like get everything to, you know, make a baby and just laying there. And <laughs> this is really gross, but it just all kind of gurgled back up. <laughs> Like, my body was like, no. Nope, I don't want this. (laughs) And it was so just, like, funny and awkward and embarrassing and gross. And I was laying there like, I don't know, what do I do? Do I, like, shove it back in? (laughs) Um, And it was just really awkward. And as I was laying there, I'm just like, you know, in all my fantasies of making a baby, this is not how I thought that it was going to go down. I really feel like your, your body and God was like, no, 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 no. This is not for you right now. Get out. (laughs) I like looking back, I'm like, you know, I kind of feel like my body was like, nope, we are not going to be permanently connected. (laughs) Perfect. All right. So you know that I like to do my um, question at the end. It is from a, uh, a game called things they don't teach you in school. It's a crazy mix of fun facts, random trivia, totally useless knowledge. So our weird section of, our weird sex question of the week, and this one is recycled, is masturbation more common among people with more or less education? Hmm. I would guess more education because the smarter you are, the more you realize how few people are actually worth your time. Ooh, I'm not sure if that's the reason, but the answer is correct. Studies have shown that it is more common among individuals with higher levels of education. I did have a guest one time who posited that that could be um, because, especially like in the older, um, we were talking about like France and stuff like that and like the sexual revolution and, or not the sexual revolution, but the 
anyway, it was something on Outlander and how they had dildos and stuff back in the 1800s. And she says, probably because the upper classes had time to masturbate. <laughs> and the underclasses were busy working all the time to, to feed themselves. Yeah, it could be. All right. So now I know we're just sticking with your first name on here. So I'm not going to ask how people can find you unless you want to. Or you're just going to stay under the radar. You stay under the, the DL until I, right. you know, have that conversation with mom and dad. <laughs> so uh, people can find me on Instagram at standupcomedysexed. My website is standupcomedysexed.com and also raylenetaskowski.com. And I've set up a Facebook group just for this podcast so you can participate in polls, ask questions, politely share an alternate point of view. Um, if you have ideas for a show, let me know. I'll find an expert. Uh, and generally, let us know what you think of this episode. So search Stand Up Comedy Sex Ed Podcast on Facebook. Please subscribe to the podcast, share, leave a message. Let me know who you are. My numbers have just been skyrocketing lately, but I have no idea who's listening. So if you could just drop a little comment, tell me what you think, what I could do better, or what you really love, I would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for coming on my show today, Sarah. It was really a pleasure talking to you. And I uh, Hopefully we can just get together and talk again another time. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.